The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure you're in fellowship. Give you a few moments to use 1 John 1 9 if necessary. Then I'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word to teach us how to think and how to understand reality and also because in your word you give us examples of both success and failure in the spiritual life that we may learn from the faults, failures, and successes of others. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we might be refreshed by what we study, that might give us insight into our own lives, our own decisions, and that we might be strengthened in our own spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One announcement I forgot. We've got the conference coming up on... Um, on the 13th of March, fast approaching like a freight train. And we have a number of things that need to be done. One thing that Connie asked, if anybody is coming this way during the day, planning to attend during the day, and would uh, volunteer to maybe run by the motel where most of the pastors are staying to give anybody a lift if they need it, uh, just talk to her and she will uh, square that away. Also, don't forget that that week prior to the conference, which would be the 7th and the 9th, is that right? Tuesday night the 7th, Thursday night the 9th, there will be no class that week to give everybody time to get all the last-minute details taken care of, chairs set up, all the logistics squared away. Okay, we're in Genesis chapter 26, one of the most interesting Episodes, I think, in the Old Testament. Let me give you some opening principles we need to think about before we address the events in this chapter. First of all, we have to remember that God is sovereign. That means that God rules the universe. He is the ultimate authority and the final authority in the universe. Second thing, as part of that, is that God rules human history. As the sovereign, he is overseeing the progress of his plan in human history. and He has certain things that he is working out. And in the process of doing that, he does it, point number three, with by allowing the flexibility of human volition within the framework of human history. And one of the most important things that we must understand is God in his omniscience. I mean, his knowledge is just beyond anything we can imagine that he has so structured and created reality and human history that it includes the flexibility to handle the chaos that results from our own bad decisions. 
We see that with the event of the fall. God created everything perfect. He created all of the animals to be uh, gramnivorous. They were all grass eaters. They, all the animals were to eat from the, from the grass of the field. None were meat eaters. There's no death. There's no antagonism in the animal kingdom whatsoever. Then Adam sins, and now there's this change that takes place. There's change that reverberates through all of the through all of creation, so that Romans eight points out that the entire universe is groaning under the curse of sin. So that sin doesn't just affect man's relationship to God, but it is this intrusion of evil into the universe that fractures everything. So the, and it has a uh, consequence and an effect on biology, on botany. You now have thorns and thistles. Animals are going to become uh, meat eaters. That's going to change their, their dental structure. It's going to change their gastrointestinal system. All of this changes because of sin. Now, that's a tremendous amount of flexibility within all of the biological, geological, meteorological, bot, uh, botanical structures in the universe. And so God created all the types, all the categories, all the different things with enough flexibility within their structures to handle the chaos that sin would bring in. That also applies to human history and other decisions that man makes. Even though God is working things out according to his predetermined plan, he includes within that human volition. And when man decides to violate God's standards and to try to do it his own way as opposed to God's way, God still will bring about what he intended to bring about. Man may miss out on the blessing. He may miss out on certain opportunities. God's still going to bring it out because he includes within his plan enough flexibility to handle the chaos that our sinful decisions bring about. So within history, God allows flexibility for the chaos of human sin and negative volition. Fourth point, volition means that we can either be a part of God's plan or we can be uh, in violation of God's plan. We can either be a part of God's plan according to God's principles and have the blessing of participation and the production of divine good or... We can try to, this would be point number five, or we can try to enact God's plan on our own terms and in our own timing. In other words, we try to manipulate even what we know God is trying to do. We may end up trying to push it, manipulate it, speed it up, hurry it up, and in the result it produces consequences, unintended, unintended consequences that are, that are negative, produces self-induced misery, and human good. And that's what we see pictured in Genesis 27 is we just see this fragmentation of the chosen family. They're chosen by God. God is reiterated as we saw last time in Genesis 26. God reiterates the Abrahamic covenant to, to uh, Isaac. And yet now we just see the absolute fragmentation of this family and it doesn't get any better. In fact, one person who's recently read through this whole uh, Isaac's cycle all the way down to Joseph commented that these people aren't very likable and they're not I mean we just see them warts and all they're just not 
nice, attractive people. They are manipulative. They're deceptive. They are uh, constantly trying to get the better of one another. They're just, and the more they get away from God, the more they drift spiritually from that standard that Abraham set, the more chaos enters into their, their life until you get this totally fractured, fragmented, I'm trying to avoid using psychobabble terms like dysfunctional uh, family. It comes along with when uh, Jacob's sons try to kill their brother Joseph and finally get talked out of that and they sell him into slavery. I mean, this is as, as screwy a bunch of people as you could ever run across. Yet these are the ones that God has chosen to be the custodian of his revelation and his plan of salvation. Now, if that doesn't tell us something about grace, then I don't know what will. But it's it, this this deterioration really, we really see it begin in this Isaac episode with uh, first the Esau's giving up of the of the birthright at the end of chapter twenty five, and now this episode in chapter in chapter twenty seven. So there's a couple of principles we need to remember. In light of this, that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And that's what we see happen here. The right thing is that God has already promised and prophesied and announced that the elder will serve, I mean, the younger will, excuse me, the elder will serve the younger. And that the blessing is going to go to Jacob and not to Esau. But rather than trusting God to work things out in his timing and according to his plan, we see the manipulation of Jacob trying to get the birthright from Esau. And then here we see Rebekah go into uh, hyperdrive as she tries to control, manipulate all the circumstances in this situation so that her favorite can get the blessing. And the result is that it just creates further fragmentation in the family so that uh, there's a lot of unintended consequences. So a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong, and that's a principle that is absolutely lost on our generation. It's the the uh, corollary to this is that the end never justifies the means, and yet it's, it's funny. You get into uh, Christian circles, and they are so against situational ethics and moral relativism and postmodernism and then as soon as you get into things that are happening within the church evangelism worship praise and worship music all this stuff they immediately throw out their critique of the external worldly culture and they start operating on an end justifies the means methodology this is what dominates the whole uh, church growth movement today and it seeps into everything And if history teaches us anything, what happens is that as the church slides more and more into apostasy, even the groups that want to hold the line gradually become affected by the culture at large. I'll give you an example. I'll try, I won't mention any names. Most of these people aren't doing what they did then anyway, but about 15 years ago, I've been battling this praise and worship garbage a long time. About 15 years ago, there was a uh, pastor's conference. Doctrinal doctrinal pastors got together, and uh, we met up somewhere 
uh, north of here to make it vague in general. And this was, yeah, good 16, 17 years ago. And uh, my good friend Tommy Ice and I left Dallas and drove up together. And we got up there and we were having lunch one day with a couple of uh, men who were uh, doctrinal missionaries and pastors and working with young people. And we were just appalled at what they were having these kids saying. It was just this standard, and, 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 in, and in church, they were just, they were already going into praise and worship. Now, traditional Bible churches, you understand the history of the Bible church movement, which came out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the early part of the, of the 20th century, and most Bible churches can be traced back to having their birth or origin in the 20s and 30s, and then there was a real explosion in the post-war era because you know Dallas Seminary really got cranked up in the 50s and started generating a lot of a lot of graduates and a lot of pastors and bible churches started drifting into this in the mid 70s and getting into the church growth movement and the more of the counterculture stuff through the influence of people like Gene Getz at Dallas Seminary and and uh, Calvary Chapel out in Southern California and this sort of set the set the trend but this didn't impact uh the more doctrinal teaching churches but even by the by the 80s they started wanting to have a king like all the other nations as it were and and it was amazing how and I would I would argue that it was because of their isolation they didn't realize most of these guys had no clue about church history no clue about contemporary trends in the 20th century and they were making the same mistakes and they had no framework they had no ability to critique what was going on or why this was possibly wrong and what's interesting is all these guys, these guys who are all doing it all they all had ministries that cratered in the next 10 years but it's it's basically the idea that uh, we can do church a certain way that's going to be more attractive and appealing to the younger people the culture at large today and so they won't feel like they're coming into a totally foreign environment and this is a mentality that's affected the whole church growth movement uh, they, they adopt a lot of marketing strategies some of which aren't bad but it's the idea that uh, when it comes to music especially here are here's a generation baby boomers who grew up listening to, to Elvis and the Beatles and uh, Grateful Dead or whomever and when they come to church all of a sudden you're singing Wesley hymns and and Isaac Watts and this is just so foreign to what they listen to on the radio whether they're listening to uh, Reba McIntyre or they're listening to uh, heavy metal it's just not what they're singing in church so let's sing things that make them feel more comfortable well, all of a sudden now the issue is making unbelievers feel comfortable in church. The Word of God should never make an unbeliever feel comfortable. I mean, that's just not our priority. It would hit them with the truth, and the truth always makes everybody feel uncomfortable because we're fallen creatures. So this whole principle of a right thing done in a wrong way is just completely lost today. And people you'd never expect to be compromising this principle are doing it. So we have to be careful with that. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. The end never justifies the means. Further, a wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. 
Uh, and that seems obvious to everybody. Only a right thing done in the right way is wrong. Evangelism, worship, praise, singing, all of these are good things, but they have to be done in a way that is consistent with the Scriptures where you don't compromise your message by your methodology. And that's the problem that uh, affects the church because as soon as you start talking about methodology, you get into things like philosophy, and all of a sudden people just go, oh, well, that's beyond me. Let's do deal with something practical. And you have to think more deeply about these things. I remember Tommy and I used to get into some major uh, arguments with other seminary students because they just wouldn't uh, accept the principle that methodology is driven by doctrinal presuppositions. And what you do and how you, how you do what you do is as important as what you do. And that's the problem that we have here with Isaac and, and Jacob is because Jacob wants to secure the blessing his way. He wants to do a right thing. God's promised him the blessing. But he wants to do it a wrong way. And what are the consequences? The consequences is the, the family is fractured for the next 20 years. Rebecca, who's the driving force behind this manipulation, loves her favorite Jacob. She just dotes on him. And what she's trying to secure for him is, is security of the blessing. And what she gets is she's got to send him away. and She doesn't see her favorite again because she will die before he comes home. So this is the kind of thing that we have to... When we do the a right thing the wrong way, we're operating on arrogance, and we never see all of the unintended negative consequences that result from that. And that's what we see in this particular uh, episode. Okay, all that's just some opening principles to think about as we work our way through this, this episode. Now, there are some th- other things that we need to think about in terms of general observations or general principles that, that are in the background of this passage. First of all, the key concept in the Isaac Toledote from Genesis 25 all the way down through uh, the death of, of Isaac and into the birth of Joseph and the jo- Joseph narrative, the key concept, not a key word because it's not used that much, but the key concept is deception. I mean, it's deception, deception, deception. Isaac deceives Abimelech. We saw that last time in Genesis 26. In Genesis 27, Jacob deceives Isaac into giving him the blessing. In Genesis 29, Laban is going to deceive Isaac with regard to uh, his choice of a wife. Furthermore, in that chapter 29 and chapter 30, Laban is going to try to cheat Jacob, but Jacob is going to outwit Laban. I mean, they're just lovely people. Then Jacob and Rachel both deceive uh, Laban in chapter 31, and then we have that really bizarre episode uh, of Dinah who gets raped by her boyfriend in Shechem, and then uh, her brothers deceive the Shechemites, the Hivites who are living in Shechem, and end up killing them all. I mean, it's deception, deception, deception. Everybody's manipulating everybody else to get what they think is the, the, the right thing. Everybody's operating on their own agenda. So the key concept throughout this whole section is deception and manipulation and people trying to get God to bless them on their own terms and follow their own agenda. 
Now, I know nobody here has ever tried to do that, so we're just talking about abstract theological application here, right? Three important observations. Second point. First point was a key concept that governs all this section is deception. Man trying to manipulate and deceive in order to get what he thinks God has for him. Three important observations. One is that in chapter 27, there's one character that's missing. We have Jacob. We have Isaac. We have Esau. We have Rebekah. We have Jacob. Who's missing? God's missing. There's no mention of God in the chapter. The silence of God reverberates throughout this chapter. God appears and gives an announcement about the birth of the of the twins in Genesis 24. In Genesis 25, God appears and gives revelation to to Isaac, confirming the uh, passing on of the blessing to Isaac, which is the key idea in that whole section. God promises the blessing, even though he messes up and goes to Abimelech, goes to uh, Gerar, and he deceives Abimelech. Nevertheless, God blesses him and expands his wealth. He's already incredibly wealthy due to his inheritance from Abraham. But then God blesses him in his own right, and his wealth just explodes. And that provides part of the background to understand the uh, weight of the importance of the blessing in Genesis 27. This is what is at stake, is this vast wealth that God has blessed Isaac with. So the blessing that is being passed on is something that is absolutely tremendous. It's, it's uh, in one sense, in a, arguing from our sin nature, it's worth deception to get. I mean, it, it's, it, it's trying to get the, the inheritance of, of, of a Bill Gates. I mean, this is an incredible amount of, of material wealth that is at stake. But God is silent. God doesn't say a thing. He is completely in the background. We see a couple of principles in this. First of all, when we're ignoring God and trying to do things our own way, then God often steps back and allows us to deal with our own consequences. He gives us enough rope to hang ourselves, as it were. He just, he just steps back and lets us push the envelope and until everything falls apart in fragments and we ultimately are faced with such uh, self-induced misery, misery that we have to turn to God in order to recover from our own bad decisions. Second thing that we must realize on the positive side is when we make God a priority in our life, when God is a priority in our life and Bible class is a priority in our life, which is a corollary principle, then no matter what else is going on in our life, whatever the demands are from work, whatever the demands are from your family, when you put the Lord first, God will take care of the rest. This is a principle seen in Matthew 6.33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. When we put God's priorities first, and we're going to make time for Bible class. We're going to make time for that renovation of our thinking uh, through the filling of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, that no matter what the other pressures in life may be, God will take care of them. But when we start sacrificing, I don't mean that in a good sense, 
But we start doing away with Bible class. We start avoiding class. We're too busy with work. There's too many demands here. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Then all of a sudden things are going to fragment because we get away from, from the source of blessing. When we try to make life work apart from the divine priority, God's priorities, then we might get what we want. We see this all the time. You see people who are so focused on success in business, so so focused on social advance, so focused on social life or friends, whatever it may be, that they put that in front of Bible class. They put that in front of their spiritual life. And even though they may achieve that and find a measure of happiness, eventually it falls apart because they built a house of cards. Psalm 106.15 makes this clear. This is a great verse to remember. The context of Psalm 106 is a meditation on God's grace to the Exodus generation. And in the previous verses, it talks about everything that God did in bringing the nation out of Egypt, how God protected them from their enemies, how God uh, took care of them, how God protected them at the Red Sea, separated the waters, destroyed their enemies, and on and on and on. And then in Psalm, in verse 14, we read, But they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. They wanted food, they wanted water, and they tested God in the desert. But God gave them their request. He sent quail, right? But leanness to their soul. They got what they wanted, but it didn't bring them happiness. And this is a key verse for people to remember, is that often we think we know what we want, and God gives it to us, but we realize the result is vanity, it's emptiness. That's why uh, Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. It's just that frantic search for happiness, trying to find meaning and purpose in life and all the details of life. And frequently God will give them to us. But the result is that we're miserable because with with God we can do without anything. That's what Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 4. I have learned to abound and I've learned to suffer want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, don't rip that out of the context. He's not saying, I can do anything I want because Christ strengthens me. It's not even a verse for power in the spiritual life. It is specifically related to the previous verse where he says, I've learned to abound and I've learned to do without. In other words, whether I have all the physical things around me that I would like to have or whether I don't, whether I have money or I don't have money, no matter what the details of life are, I can handle every situation. That's what he means by I can do all things. I can handle any situation, abundance or lack of abundance, adversity or prosperity. I can handle all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when we put our priority on God, God will work out the details. So Genesis 27 is a picture of when we don't trust God and we try to manipulate the people and the circumstances to get even what may be the right thing. It ultimately blows up in our face, falls apart, and we end up uh, with all of the negative consequences. Arrogance blinds us to the truth. And what, that's exactly what we see in the family dynamics of Jacob, I mean of Isaac and Rebekah. 
from the very beginning they have shown favoritism. Isaiah, uh, Genesis 26:28 says, or 25:28 says, and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And that verse back in Genesis 25:28 foreshadows the events of chapter 27. And because of their arrogance, they have shown favoritism to their children. And we see something interesting in the words that are chosen in chapter 27. It talks about Esau is Isaac's son, and Jacob is Rebekah's son. And that's that emphasis on this, this favoritism that they play, played off. And the result was that the family is fragmented for the next two years. Then we come to two key words that are played off against each other in this whole context from uh, 25 with the selling of the birthright to the blessing in chapter 27. And that's the word baracha for blessing that's used here in chapter 27. And bakora, which is the word for birthright, you just transpose the R and the K and you change the change the word. You can't read the Hebrew up there, but that's the only difference between the two words is the R and the K are transposed. And so there's a play on words here to emphasize uh, what is at stake. The birthright and the blessing. And the birthright and the blessing are two different things. The birthright has to do with the uh, with the inheritance. Uh, the financial inheritance, the will. The blessing has to do with the future destiny of the child. And there is a legal aspect to both of these. Just as the birthright was a, would express a, the legal uh, distribution of the inheritance in a will, the blessing is oral, but it has a legal force that is irreversible and can't be diminished. So that once Isaac states the blessing, he can't back up. He can't say, well, I was deceived. It doesn't matter that fraud occurred. It is as if it's written in stone and it can't be backed up. A couple of things that we should understand related to the history of the time, the customs of the time. At this time in history, the principle of primogenitor, that is the inheritance to the eldest son, is not consistently practiced. There, it was inconsistent. It was, uh, was not uniformly practiced in the ancient world. The distribution of the inheritance was the prerogative of the father. So even though a lot of places practiced primogenitor, there sometimes they didn't. It was up to the father how the inheritance is distributed. Furthermore, the right of the firstborn could be transferred to another son. This was legitimate. And case law allowed for that. The blessing itself could be distributed among several children, so it didn't have to all go to one. It could be distributed among different children. And then, as I just said, the blessing had a legal force, a legal impact that could not be changed, couldn't be modified, couldn't be withdrawn once it was given. Now let's look at what happens in Genesis 27. It's a long chapter. We'll probably, well, I want to try to cover the first 40 verses. It's easy to do that in narrative because it's a story. It's not like exegeting uh, Ephesians 1 or uh, Colossians 3 or Ephesians 3. We t- tell a story and then you look at the uh, implications of the story with and what the writer 
through the Holy Spirit is demonstrating here. And part of what he is demonstrating is the grace of God to, to, to bless this family that is so uh, fragmented, so immoral. They, they are, uh, they, they, they're, they're, there's intermarriage in the family. Uh, they're deceptive. They're manipulative. Uh, they show favoritism. They are uh, cunning. They, I mean, this is just not a very, very lovely group of people. Nevertheless, God has chosen them. They are. It almost exemplifies the principle of First Corinthians chapter one that God has chosen the weak things of the world to demonstrate His power, and the foolish things of the world to demonstrate His power. And so, even though this family is as messed up as they are, and they get a lot worse, trust me, we'll see that. God is going to bring about his plan of redemption. And he's demonstrating here that it doesn't have anything to do with our own merit, our own goodness, our own qualities. It has to do with his character and his grace. There's basically four scenes in this section, four different events. First of all, we have Isaac and Esau in the first four verses. Isaac calls Esau in and he wants to give him the blessing but first he wants to have, make sure that Esau fixes him a good meal that, that uh, culinary lust of his he, he's a real foodie he wants that he wants that venison stew or, or venison steak whatever it is he wants that venison roast that only Esau can prepare and that's the first four verses. And then the scene shifts because Rebecca is listening in at the door. She's eavesdropping, and that's reminiscent of Sarah eavesdropping on the three visitors when they came to Abraham back in Genesis chapter, chapter 17. And so she realizes what Isaac is up to, and she's not about to let her favorite be overlooked in the process. So Isaac isn't trusting in God's announcement. He has completely voided what God said would happen, and he's going to uh, go ahead and pass on the blessing to his favorite. And now Rebecca shows that she just doesn't have a, uh, an ounce of trust for God either, so she's going to try to make it happen uh, her way. And so she calls in Jacob, and they set out a plan. And then in verses, that's in 5 through 13. And then in 14 through 29, we focus on Isaac and Jacob, where Isaac uh, works out the plan that Rebecca came up with, and Isaac goes in and deceives Jacob and gets the blessing. And then the last scene is in verses 30 down through 33, where uh, Esau and I mean it focuses on Jacob or Isaac and Esau, and they discover the deception and that Esau has lost the blessing. And that's really from about 30 down to 40, where we have a uh, almost a, uh, an anti-blessing given to Esau, and then Esau's reaction in 41 to 42. So Isaac and Esau in 1 through 4, Rebecca and Jacob in 5 to 13, Isaac and Jacob in 14 to 29, and Isaac and Esau in 30 to 40. came to pass, verse 1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim, and this almost stands for, uh, pictures his spiritual condition as well. He is spiritually blind 
to a number of things. He's blind to God's sovereignty and God's plan. He's blind to God's intended heir. He's blind to God's blessing. And he's blind to the consequences of his actions on his own family. When we get involved in arrogance and self-absorption, it we get into self-deception. We don't see reality as it is, and so we make bad decisions from a position of weakness that end up creating a whole host of negative consequences that come back to haunt us. The horrible thing about bad decisions is that you don't see the consequences immediately, frequently. You see them in five years or ten years, and it's too late to undo the decision. And so you make bad decisions, you set up bad habit patterns, and that's exactly what had happened in this household, is for at least 20 or 30 years they have had this habit pattern of showing favoritism to the children so that Isaac favored Esau and uh, Rebekah favored uh, Jacob. And now that it comes to a crucial test in the life of the family, they can't make right decisions anymore because they have... Uh, dug this trench, as it were, in terms of their habit patterns and their family dynamics, and so there's no grace in operation uh, whatsoever. And we see the whole uh, dysfunctional family. Jacob, I mean, Isaac calls in Esau and he says, My son, and he says, Here I am. It's reminiscent of what? Genesis 22. Uh, Abraham saying, uh, my son, let's go to Moriah. Here I am. I'm ready. He says, Behold, now I'm old. I do not know the day of my death. He's, not, he's going to live for another 20 years at least because he's still alive when uh, Jacob comes back from Padan Aram, which is at least 20 years from now. So even though he's old, he's not uh, that old. If he's only 20 years, he lives to be 180. So this would make him 160. This would make the boys 100 years old. So I don't think they're quite that old. So he lives for a long time after this, maybe, maybe 50, 60 years, because they're not, they're not uh, well, Jacob's not married yet, so they're probably only 40 or 50, so he's got a long way to go before he actually dies. But he's already showing those signs of physical failure and uh, mental failure, and he sends out Esau because he's the cunning, knowing hunter, and he can not only hunt the game, but he can cook it. And Isaac just loves that, so he's driven by his own desire to have good, tasty food. Now, I can relate to that. Now, I know there's some people, they don't care about food. I don't care. I'm, I'm motivated by good food. Now, Rebecca listens in, and she realizes what the plan is, that, to, that Esau will come back, he will prepare a meal, and then Isaac will bless him. And Isaac says that my soul may bless you before I die. And that that's merely an idiom for that I may bless you before I die. Soul often is used in both Hebrew and Greek in the New Testament just as a reference to the person. And so often you'll, you, it'll talk about my soul will bless you. And it's not talking about soul versus spirit versus body. It's simply an idiom for I will, I will bless you before I die. So then we come to the second scene, which is Rebecca, and she's listening. Now, if they're living in tents, it's not too hard to eavesdrop. She could be intentionally listening. She could be uh, just accidentally walking by, but she intentionally stops to listen to the conversation. 
And when Esau goes to the field, she hatches her conspiracy and calls in Jacob. Now, the picture we see here is that Jacob wouldn't do this if it weren't for her pushing. She is really the prime mover in this whole conspiracy. She wants to make sure that her boy gets what he's due. God said he's going to be the one to get the blessing, and she's going to make sure it happens. And that's why it's so ironical that in her attempt to make it happen, she creates a situation where Jacob has to leave and she'll never see him again. Now, those are the kinds of negative consequences that we often generate when we're operating apart from God and in arrogance. So she has him, she tells him what she's overheard, and she tells him to go out and get a couple of choice kids of the goats. And she's going to make a savory food. She's going to make cabrito. I love cabrito. It's really good. I love barbecued goat. And that's what she's going to do. She's going to make a good meal of cabrito for uh, for Isaac so that he won't be able to tell the difference between the goat and venison. Now, that's a good cook. She's able to cook the domesticated meat so that it tastes like wild meat. Also, is an indication that Esau must have been a good cook because he could make the wild game taste as if it's not wild. I remember one time when I used to go deer hunting a lot, having having dinner and serving a venison roast. And while and I didn't I had learned never to mention that because people have all kinds of of uh, weird ideas of what game tastes like. Usually because in Texas what you get is people who go out to some deer lease and they shoot a deer on Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon and then they, they field dress it sometime Sunday afternoon. The temperature's been up to 70 or 80 and then they strap it down on the hood of their car, on the top of their car and then they drive home with it and sometime around Tuesday or Wednesday they, they get it into the get it into the butcher to have it cut up. Well, it's going to have a wild gamey uh, taste to it, and they don't necessarily uh, field dress it right. And the way I was taught was that if I shot something on Saturday morning, then by Saturday night it was clean. Anything on the meat that was questionable you cut off. And by, by Saturday night it was wrapped and in the freezer. And then I could take a roast and I could cook it. I'd sit at dinner and hear people say, you know, we... I don't like eating any kind of game. Boy, this meat's really good. I just, I've never had any good venison. What'd you do? Where'd you get this roast? This is really good. I just, I said, well, you're eating venison. I'd wait till they finished the meal. And uh, so you can do that. And that's apparently what Esau could do. He was a good cook and he could fix the venison in such a way that, that it just was delicious. And he had probably learned that from his mother. And, so she had the same ability. So she fixes the meal, and then uh, Jacob's going to go in. But Jacob, Jacob's crafty. He says, wait a minute, this plan isn't going to work. Remember, Esau's the hairy guy. He's the outdoorsman. He's going to smell like it. He's going to feel like it. I'm going to get in there, and he's going to know the difference. He's going to feel me because in a circumstance like this where you're passing on the blessing, you would be touched. The father would touch the son and kiss the son, and, and as soon as he did that, he would know that this wasn't Esau. So he's, he has this objection, and she says, well, wait a minute, if he, gets, if he dis- discovers the deception, 
and curses you, then let the curse be on me. I'll take responsibility, only obey my voice and go and get them. So he goes out and he goes along with the plan and and he gets the kids and she prepares the meal. And then she goes in and she gets Esau's clothes and puts those on Jacob. So now he's going to smell like Esau and he's going to have Esau's clothes on and then they're going to take some uh, skins of the kids and the goats and they're going to put that on his across his neck and on his arms so that when uh, Isaac gets a little suspicious and reaches out to feel him he's going to feel that hairy arm and he's going to think that's Esau and so Jacob goes along with the plan and he goes into Isaac and Isaac's amazed you haven't been gone that long how could you go out in the field and and kill the game and come back and prepare it. This takes more time. But Isaac said, I've done just... Uh, Isaac came back. He says, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done just as you told me. And come and eat the game. And Isaac said, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? This is verse 20. Because the Lord your God... And, and he, I love it. We always justify our carnality with a spiritual solution. Jesus told me to do it. But God brought the game to me. God, all, You ever notice how people blame God when something goes wrong? Well, it must have been God's will. In other words, it's God's fault. So he says God, he, he blames God, and this is the only time there's a mention of God anywhere in the passage. Because the Lord your God brought it to me. Verse 21, Isaac then said to Jacob, Come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. Now, I want you to notice something. Isaac's first statement in verse 20 or in verse, uh, let me see, let's go back to verse 19. I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done just as you told me. Please arise, sit, and eat of my game. Notice how loquacious he is, how, how wordy he is. In verse uh, 20, he says, Because the Lord your God brought it to me. And then Isaac begins to question him. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, and felt him. And, and Isaac says, Wait a minute. The, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. So he, he, he's honing in on the voice. And after that, from this point on, Jacob has one-word answers. Before that, he's wordy. But as soon as Isaac uh, makes his observation about the voice, Jacob clams up. He recognizes that's a dead giveaway. And he doesn't say much after that. Verse, verse 24, then he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he says, Yes. He said, Bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's game, so that my soul may bless you. And he brought it near, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. But he doesn't say anything else. And then verse 26, Then his father said, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing, blessed him, and said... And see, we never hear Jacob talk again. He learned to keep his mouth shut, because that would give away the, the deception. And so he's successful at deceiving Isaac... And now Isaac is going to give him the blessing. This begins in verse 27. Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field, which the Lord has blessed. So he, he's uh, emphasizing that this is Esau. Therefore, because you're the one who goes out in the field, you're the outdoorsman, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth. And here is a typical Hebrew expression where you have the contrast between heaven and earth. It's the same thing that we see in Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. It's called a merism where you talk about the two different opposites. And it, so it's an all-inclusive term. And what he's saying here is that may God give you all the fullness that there possibly can be. 
from the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, everything in, uh, in reality, and plenty of grain and wine. So the emphasis in verse 28 is on uh, productivity and prosperity of the field, that whatever he puts his hand to agriculturally is going to prosper and produce a hundredfold, just as it has for Isaac. Verse 29, let people serve you. So we move from the productivity and fertility of the, of the, of the field and the earth to his expansion and dominance as a people. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. So we talk about the fertility of the land and now the blessing over people. So he brings in both of these ideas from the Abrahamic covenant, the land and the blessing. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. And then cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. This comes right out of the Abrahamic covenant. So he's emphasizing two of the three ideas in the Abrahamic covenant related to land and related to blessing because he's passing on the... He's viewing this as Esau. He's the seed, but he, in fact, he has been deceived, and he's giving this blessing to uh, to Jacob. Then, apparently, Jacob left. As soon as he got that blessing, he slipped out, and not too soon either, because Esau shows up in verse thirty. Now, it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob. And Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau's brother came in from his hunting. So he comes in, and he's got the game, and now he's going to prepare it. He builds a fire. He, he uh, dresses the animal, and he, he makes the, the stew or the roast or whatever it is that he is making. And he comes into his father and says, Let my father arise and eat of the son's game, that your soul may bless me. And now Isaac's really confused. I mean, he's old. He's in his dotage, and, and he's, he's thinking, Wait a minute, I already did this. Who are you? And Esau says, I'm your firstborn. I'm Esau. Notice the emphasis on firstborn. I'm the one who should have the blessing right. And then Isaac trembled exceedingly. And the Hebrew is very graphic. He just, I mean, he is, he, he's so angry that he is shaking all over because he realizes the deception that has occurred and that he has been, uh, he and Esau have been defrauded of the blessing. And he then begins to question Esau to discover what has happened. And when Esau heard the words of his father, verse 34, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. He wails, the Hebrew says. I mean, he just screams out, falls on his knees, uh, weeping and crying. Bless, and, he, and, and it's almost... It's almost a pitiable sight here. He just pleads with that. Give me something. Give me the crumbs off the table. Just bless me some way, somehow. We don't have anything in our society that relates to this. This He, he, he has lost everything. There is nothing for him. He sold a birthright. Now he's lost the blessing. There's nothing for him. He has lost everything that he could get from his father. And he pleads with him. And Isaac explains the situation. He said, your brother came with deceit. He's taken away the blessing. There's nothing I can do about it. It's locked in. This is how it's handled. And Esau said, oh, he's rightly named Jacob. He's the supplanter. He's the deceiver. 
He's the one. Twice he has taken advantage of me. Is there not something left? And Isaac answered and said, Well, I've made him your master, and all his brethren I've given all his brethren I've given to him as servants. You're now going to serve him. He's the one who's going to be prosperous. His land will be prosperous. Yours will not. And that's exactly what worked out in history in Edom. Edom never had the prosperity that Israel had. The land was desert. It was wilderness. And there was never any prosperity there. So finally, he pleads and pleads and pleads with Isaac to give him uh, some blessing. And Isaac answers him and says, and this is not a blessing. Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. You'll live outside. By your sword you shall live. You're going to be pursued by violence and war, and that's going to characterize your people. You shall serve your brother. You will always be dominated by, by Jacob's descendants, by Israel. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Eventually, you're going to be antagonistic to him. This is what happened in historically. What's the result? Verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, mental attitude, sin, the days of the mourning for my father at hand. He's going to die soon. As soon as he dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. Then I'll get it all. Because if he dies, I'll get the inheritance. But the words of Esau were told to Rebekah. Her spies heard him plotting to kill Jacob. And so she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Flee to my brother Laban and Haran and stay with him for a while. And that's what happens in the next few chapters. He has to leave town. Now I want you to turn from there and let's go to the Hebrews passage. Hebrews passage warns us that we need to carefully examine ourselves lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. That is, depart from grace orientation. That's exactly what happened in the dynamics of the family. They forgot that ultimately it's God's grace that provides the blessing. It is God's grace that provides success. It is God's grace that gives us everything that we have, and the right thing must be done in a right way. So we are to examine ourselves carefully, lest anyone fall short of grace orientation, lest, like with Esau, any root of bitterness, and that's what happens here, He, he get, there's this... Uh, bitterness that arises because he has lost the blessing. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And this is what's happened. This family is fragmented for the next 20 years because of Esau's bitterness and his anger, his resentment, and his vengefulness. And it defiles many. As a result of that, the concept of defile me, I know, means to be ceremonially impure. I've gone back and done, looked at the use of the word throughout uh, classical Greek all the way up through Koine Greek, and it is always used in context of religion to describe those who are separated from whatever the God is. And in, in the Old Testament, it always is used to describe those who are not ceremonially clean. They can't come into the temple and worship God. And this is because of sin in the life. Hebrews 12:16. Lest there be any fornicator, and here it doesn't mean fornicator, it's pornes, uh, pornos, it means someone who is immoral. And he is Im- Esau is immoral because he is not, uh, he, he's not following God or profane. He does not 
uh, value the things of God. It has not a comment on his salvation or lack of salvation, but that his priorities are completely off-center. And so he was willing to sell his birthright for a morsel of food. That's Genesis uh, uh, 24 or 25. And 25 and Hebrews 12:17. For you know that afterward, this is Genesis 27, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance. See, the repentance here is his change of mind and his calling upon Isaac to give him the blessing. He found no place for repentance or for a change of mind, though he sought it diligently with tears. This is his weeping and wailing in chapter 27. Now, one last place where I want you to go. What has happened in this family? What have we seen? Strife, division, dissension, fragmentation. What do you see? This is application. What do you see? What do you think of when you see that going on? Maybe in your family, maybe in uh, in business, wherever there are people. You see that. The first thing that we ought to think of is the description we have in Galatians chapter 5. This is the war between the spirit and the flesh, the sin nature. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 we read, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, and here we have it, hatred, contention, jealousy, outburst of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions. Right in the middle of this list of the works of the flesh, you have this list of contention, of hatred, contention, jealousy, anger, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, and dissension. When there is fragmentation in personal relationships, what's lurking underneath somewhere is an out-of-control sin nature. And the solution starts with confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, to get back in fellowship. And it has to be followed by application of doctrine. And when you're in a situation, sometimes this happens, you're in a business situation, you're in a marriage situation, you're in a family situation, and all of a sudden, for no reason at all, there's just discord, there's just fragmentation, there's just, you know, all of a sudden people just can't get along, There. What's happening in the background is there is some selfish, arrogant agenda at work that is contrary to the Word of God. And it may be on your part, it may be on somebody else's part, but somewhere this is what's happening is there is this there is a an agenda at work that is operating on arrogance, and the result is always going to be fragmentation. And so in order to work through that, before you can deal with the real issue, there has to be a, a, a surfacing, an exposure of that arrogant self-absorption that always produces uh, fragmentation and discord. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see how you your grace works through even as fouled up a family as, as that of, of Isaac and uh, working through Jacob and Esau and, and all of the sin and immorality and discord that's there, we realize that, that your grace overrules everything and the only solution is dependence upon you and that when we are out of line, when we are trying to accomplish even good things the wrong way, the result is always going to be uh, fragmentation, self-induced misery and, and 
unhappiness. The only solution is your perfect grace solution and orientation to your plan and orientation to grace. Father, we pray that you challenge us with these things. pray this in Christ's name. Amen.